All right, howdy, everybody. I want to give you all a quick, before we get into the sermon, a quick uh, where we're headed the next couple of months, sermon-wise, update. So, uh, I originally told you guys, remember, we were going to finish Luke before the end of the year. Come on, let's be real. That was never going to happen. So, um, <laughs> here's the plan. Um, Advent starts on November 27th, and this is what we're going to do. We're going to do a few, so on the 27th, the first couple of weeks of Advent, we're going to do just our church, um, an Advent series, but all three of the churches, so First Pres, Trinity, and us, we're all doing the same series for Advent. So we have the weeks mapped out. And so Chris, Drew, and I are all going to teach very similar sermons for the first few weeks. Um, then in December, um, we're going to have four weeks in a row as joint services with those two churches. So we're going to host one, then Trinity's going to host one, and then uh, Christmas Day is on a Sunday. Um, so what we're doing is we're all going to meet at First Pres on Christmas because they meet in the evening. So we can all still have Christmas morning um, because I think if we did church at 1030 on Christmas morning, it'd just be me and Melissa going, where's everybody? Um, so we're going to do that. But then every year, I guess I never thought about this until this year, whatever day Christmas is, is also New Year's Day. So, because we want everybody to come to our house for the New Year's Eve party and then not go to church at nine in the morning after staying up all night, uh, we're also doing New Year's Day with First Pres in the evening. Um, so, I'm teaching on Christmas. Chris is going to teach on uh, New Year's Day. So, what we're going to do, though, for Luke is we are going to finish. We're coming up to the part where, um, to the part, uh, the crucifixion and resurrection. We're getting close to the end. Yeah, spoilers, guys. It happened a couple thousand years ago. Um, <laughs> so we're coming close to the end here. So what we're going to do is we're going to go up to the cross and then leave it there for all of the rest of the year. And then we're going to pick it up in January. We're going to finish the resurrection, the last couple, during the month of January. And then um, at the beginning of February, we're going to start the book of Ezekiel together. That definitely will not take more than the year next year. I promise. I'll let you all punch me in the face if it takes more than a year. Wait, maybe not. Let's see. <laughs> um, now, what that means, though, is we have two weeks in the middle of November where I'm kind of throwing an audible. So um, the, the week right before Thanksgiving, we're going to do um, some sort of a Thanksgiving psalm. We've done that the last couple of years. That's fun. Uh, the week before that, though, is November 13th. So that's only a couple of weeks away. Um, we're going to do another Q&A session. So if you don't know what this is, if you haven't been here for this, we did this last year, I believe. I've always kind of wanted to do this once a year. I think we did it at the end of the summer last year, right, before we got back into Luke. Okay, so when I, I, the story goes like this. I tell the story every time. But when I was a kid and I went to church, I was in a youth group, I raised my hand once during a youth group thing, and I asked my youth pastor a question, and then he yelled at me in front of everybody because it's not a question you're allowed to ask or whatever. And it was just like a normal question. It wasn't even like, uh, you know, why are you a liar, pastor, you know, something like that. So anyway, that always stuck with me, right? Like, uh, if you really believe this, why are you afraid of questions, dummy? It was very odd. So when I became a youth pastor, every couple of months we would do this thing where we'd pass out little strips of paper. You could write down any question and then throw it into the hat. And you don't put your name on it. And the reason is because, you know, we don't, I don't care. <laughs> we just want the questions, you know. 
Um, with kids, right, with high school kids, the questions were always, you know, which parts of my girlfriend can I touch and stuff like that, right? And it was like, come on, man. That was like, ni- that was like 90% of the questions, uh, <laughs> you know, with high school kids. Um, but then those other 10% were some pretty great questions. So I, we, we did this last year. Um, I, I do, I, I said last year too. I want to do this probably once a year. So what I want you to do is just start thinking of questions, open a notes file on your app. As you're reading your Bible, as you're thinking about Luke, put some thought into it before you get here on Sunday and show up with questions. And I don't know how we're gonna, we might do a form on the website you can fill out with your phone during the thing and they'll pop up on, we'll figure something out. We'll do, that's, that's fancy. We'll also probably have some strips of paper. The problem with strips of paper is sometimes I'm talking and I'm like, blah, blah, blah. And then you think of another question. And then you're like, oh, I want to ask a follow-up question. And then I watch you write it. And then you put it in the hat. And I go, okay, that was obviously Stephen's question, you know. So with the, with the phones, we can actually do this kind of anonymous. I'll leave my email open or whatever. So anyway, I want you to start thinking of questions. Now, what types of questions can you ask on the Q&A? Okay, math, probably not going to help you. Um, I'm a little worried about heaven when she gets to like, what, third grade is long division? That's about as far as I can go with helping her with her homework. Um, we're talking stuff that you would want your pastor to answer, you know, so theology questions, life questions, um, that sort of stuff. Um, oh, the last thing is, it's also good sometimes, I like the Q&A thing, because it's good for your pastor to get up and go, I don't know, you know, because it's just in, I don't know everything, just most things. So, <laughs> um, you know, so sometimes it'll, I'll ask a question, what do you guys think? And we'll talk about that. Um, all right, so that's just sort of the plan coming up. Let's uh, open in prayer, and we'll jump here into Luke. So God, we thank you for the time that we have to study and to talk about your word together, and I just pray that um, we would really internalize this passage and take it home with us and mull over it and just um, try to live out the truths that we see here. Help us to understand your gospel story better this morning and be here with us now. Amen. All right, start my timer. Kayla said I get three hours because I missed two sermons before. I'm not very sure she That's what she said, because it's, it's been three weeks since I preached, so. We have a Niners game we got to get to. <laughs> yeah, that's true. All right, yeah, go watch the Niners lose to the Chiefs. It's going to be rough. It's the Chiefs. Anyway, all right, here we go. Luke, back to Luke. All right. <laughs> I want to start by asking you this question. And I already know the answer. Have you ever let God down? Have you ever let the Lord down? You're sitting at home thinking, oh man, I can't believe it. Just, you know that sinking feeling in your gut when you let somebody down and how that's amplified when you're talking about sin and the Lord? Of course you have, right? We all have. Anybody that says, anybody that answers that question, no, I've never let the Lord down, you're literally doing it right now by lying about, to yourself about letting the Lord down, right? We've all been here. Now, There's a great deal of, let's be honest, shame, I guess, that comes with being a follower of Jesus. And the reason is, there's two things. Because as followers of Jesus, we know two things. We're supposed to look like Jesus. That's the first thing, right? We read that all over. Like the word Christian means little Christ, right? We're supposed to be little Christs, like little versions of Jesus walking around. People are supposed to look at us and see him. So we have that truth in our head. But then at the same time, we're terrible at it. That's the second thing we know, is that we don't 
hardly ever look like Jesus. Is, you know, we don't, not as much as we're supposed to. And when you think about those two things, it's kind of a bummer. Now, with the, the idea of sort of falling short, that we don't live up to this ideal, there's a handful of mistakes that we make when this happens. When you find yourself in that situation, okay, I've let the Lord down. I'm not living up to this, this standard of holiness that he has called me to live up to. There's a, a couple of mistakes here. The first is, I'm just going to, like, I spiral into this, like, spiritual funk, and I feel bad about myself. And then feeling bad about myself, I go, oh, man, now I'm really letting the Lord down because now I feel bad about how I let him down. And then, you, you know, and it just kind of spirals. And that funk is really hard to get out of if you've ever been in one of those kind of funks. The second mistake I think a lot of believers make is we excuse the failure away. You know, we do whatever God doesn't want us to do, and we go, well, nobody's perfect, right? God told us we're not going to be perfect, and we're still sinners. So, you know, grace covers it all, whatever. It's not that big of a deal. Uh, another thing we do is we push the feeling down, and we avoid the Bible for a while until the guilt wears off, and then we slowly work our way back up into church stuff. You ever did that? Is that just me? I've definitely done that, right? That's a terrible way to handle this. It's just pretending like none of this stuff ever happened. Another way that people handle this is they lower the bar. We just, we, something, some sin or whatever it is, some attitude that we know we're not supposed to be a part of, we just go, well, did Jesus really say? Maybe in the culture, or maybe the Greek says yada yada, and we make up some garbage that's obviously not true. Right? These are ways we handle this. Today, we're going to read about two guys who both let the Lord down in massive ways. You've probably heard of these guys. One of them betrays Jesus. One of them denies that he even knows Jesus. Right? So we're talking about Peter and Judas. And the answer to our question, what do we do in those moments when we let the Lord down? The answer to that is found at the end of this story. So we're going to kind of be in Luke, but we're also going to bounce around. We're going to read some from John and some other places. But we want to ask the question, how did these two guys, how did Peter and Judas handle this? And what can we learn from that? So we'll start in Luke 22, uh, verse 47. While he was still speaking, oh, so what we're going to do is we're going to read, I'm going to give you the outline real quick. We're going to read Judas, what he did, then we're going to read what Peter did. Then we're going to read how Judas handled it, and then we're going to read how Peter handled it. So four kind of sections here. While they were, while he was still speaking, so from weeks and weeks ago, if you remember, this is Jesus speaking to the disciples because they keep falling asleep while they're in the Garden of Gethsemane. While he was still speaking, there came a crowd, and the man called Judas, one of the twelve, was leading them. He drew near to Jesus to kiss him, but Jesus said to him, Judas, would you betray the Son of Man with a kiss? So it's interesting it starts with this crowd. While he was speaking, this crowd came. Luke uses that word a lot, but usually it's man, these crowds were so big with Jesus. They're following Jesus everywhere. Do you remember when the crowd was like crushing Jesus? So he had to go sit in a boat so that the crowd wouldn't crush him. He's massively popular. Now, all of a sudden, Luke uses the exact same sort of sentence structure, and he flips it, though. This time, the crowd is not there because they love Jesus. They're there to get Jesus. It's in this sick turn. And who's leading this crowd? Judas, one of the twelve. Luke points that out to be very, this is, this guy is close to Jesus. You, you're not supposed to, I mean, it's crazy because we all grew up, right? It's Judas, right? But if you were there, remember we said this at the Last Supper? Jesus goes, one of you will betray me. And what do they all say? Is it not me, right? 
Nobody goes, I bet it's Judas, <laughs> right? Because from their perspective, he was a good dude. They, they trusted him so much, they didn't realize he was an idiot or whatever. They trusted him so much, he was the guy, he was like the church, sec- or the church treasurer. He handled the money, right? That's how much they trusted this guy. They saw Judas heal people on that mission where the 72 got sent out. They saw Jesus pre- uh, Judas preach the gospel. Here he is now leading this crowd, and he comes up for this kiss. This, it was a customary thing to kind of, you know, like in Middle Eastern cultures, they do this. We don't really do this. The, you don't walk up to some dude and be like, hey, Josue, what's up? And then give him a big kiss. Like, that's not what we do. That's not our culture. But in this culture, it was kind of a normal thing. This is their version of the hug, right? In our culture, it would be he went up and he hugged Jesus in front of everybody. Now, the reason he did that was this was the signal. Um, remember, it's dark, and it's dark. Have you ever been, like, walking down the street in San Francisco when the street lamps broke? And you're like, it's really dark. All the lights are off, and I'm probably going to get shot, you know? Um, well, anyway, this was kind of like that. This is before street lamps and everything. I'm guessing they had torches. I don't know, right? They usually get Frankenstein's monster. The crowd always has a torch, you know? It's kind of that sort of thing. So they're going at, but the thing is, Jesus is going to be with 12 guys. And do you remember Spartacus, the movie? Who's seen the movie, right, way back in the day? Which one of you is Spartacus? And they all stand up. I'm Spartacus. Well, if there was a guy there that goes, actually, you guys, that one's Spartacus. It would have been a lot easier, right? This is what Judas's job is. I'm going to go up. I'm going to give Jesus a kiss. That way you'll know which one is Jesus, just in case you guys don't know. So we're going to skip down, actually, because we're going to skip some of Peter's part. We're going to read the rest of Judas. We'll skip down to verse 52. Then Jesus said to the chief priests and the officers of the temple and elders who came out against him, have you come out against me as a robber with swords and clubs? When I was with you day after day in the temple, you did not lay hands on me, but this is your hour and the power of darkness. And then I want to add a little bit um, from the book of John, if the same interaction. So John fills in a lot of the details that the three synoptic gospels don't. He says, so Judas having procured a band of soldiers and some officers of the chief priests and the Pharisees, went with lanterns. All right, they had some lanterns. There we go. And torches, so it was like that, and weapons. Then Jesus, knowing all that would happen to him, so Jesus knowing about the crucifixion, about facing the wrath of God, about dying the horrible death he was about to die, came forward and said to them, whom do you seek? They answered him, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus said to them, I am he. Judas, who betrayed him, was standing with them. When Jesus said to them, I am he, they drew back and fell to the ground. So this crowd involves chief priests and the people in the Sanhedrin and involves their secret service kind of guys, the temple guards. And Jesus walks up to them. He goes, am I, you're coming out against me. And Luke, he says, like I'm a robber or something. We've just been debating every day in the temple for a whole week. You remember all those ones where Jesus stomps these guys in those debates? Why didn't you arrest me then? He goes, because you know, because the people were there and they wouldn't have liked it. But this nighttime, right, the metaphor there, this is the the image. This is the hour of darkness. This is your hour. Jesus was very clear about what he was saying. You guys, what you're doing is underhanded and you know it. Because if it wasn't, you would have done this earlier today when we were all hanging out in the temple together. But you're doing it in the dark. And there's this other part that John adds. I don't know when in the little timeline of this conversation this happened, but at some point they go, we're looking for Jesus. And Jesus goes, I am he. And then they all fell down. It's kind of a weird, awesome verse. This is what's going on. Do you remember the burning bush? 
And Moses, you know, Charlton Heston, he goes up to the bush, and he's like, hey, bush, what's going on, you know? And they're having this conversation, and Moses, I'm paraphrasing, the new John version. And Moses goes, what do I tell everybody who sent me? What's your name, dude? And then God goes, my name is I am, which is the name Yahweh, right? It means like I, I, I am existence. Everybody else had to be created. Everybody else came into existence. I just am. So then Jesus, in this play on words, we're looking for which one of you is Jesus? And Jesus says the Aramaic version of that phrase, I am. He says the name of God. And what do they all do? The power of that phrase knocks him over. Now, you know what's the crazy part about this story? Then they all brush themselves off and they get up and they still arrest him. It's, Luke is being very clear that the only way Jesus is getting arrested is if Jesus wants to get arrested. Right? The other part we talked about a couple weeks ago was, you know, I have legions of angels. Remember we did the math? One angel killed a hundred and whatever thousand people. And if legions is, yeah, basically there's enough angels here, Jesus says, to kill the entire world if I need them to. Right? But no, he lets himself. And Jesus is absolutely in control of what's going on here. And what he does is he lets his friend betray him. Judas is a part of this crowd. Judas is a part of the crowd that's facing Jesus, who fell backwards when Jesus says, I am. He's a part of the hour of darkness. This is his hour, operating in the shadows with underhanded motives. But Judas, again, is not the only disciple who messes up on this night. I mean, really, they all kind of do, except for John, I guess. <laughs> he sort of sticks around. But anyway, let's read Peter's story. So back to the middle of our passage, verse 49. And when those who were around him saw what would follow, they said, Lord, should we strike? So this is right after the arrest starts. The crowd shows up. Should we strike with the sword? And one of them struck the servant of the high priest and cut off his right ear, Van Gogh style. But Jesus said, no more of this. He touched his ear and he healed him. So the disciples, it says they saw what would follow. They knew what was coming. They knew that the the leaders hated Jesus. Jesus has been talking about this for weeks now, months, years. They're going to arrest me. They're going to crucify me. And remember, last time we read that the reason, Luke tells us, the reason the disciples fell asleep was from great sorrow. Right? We always just assume it was only because they were tired. But they were also massively bummed out because they were starting to piece it together. They were starting to realize what was about to happen. Then the crowd shows up. Lord, should we attack? That's what they ask. Now, one of the disciples is very impulsive, right? Which one of these disciples is the impulsive one? It's always Peter. And he's kind of the leader. So he's like, I'll go first. Everybody will follow me. Lord, should we attack? John tells us it's Peter. Here he just says one of the disciples. John and Peter had this like brotherly rivalry, and I love it. We're going to read a little more of that in a minute. I love that. I can't wait to hang out with these two guys in heaven. It's going to be a lot of fun. Um, John tells us, though, no, it was Peter. He jumped out. He starts swinging his sword. He cuts off the ear of a guy. John gives us the guy's name, Malchus. Now, the early church, or Malchus, however you say it, I think it's Malchus, the early church writings kind of tell us something that's cool. They say that this guy later became a believer, and that's why John gives us his name. Now, we don't know for sure that's true. That's not really in the Bible, but wouldn't that be cool? One of the guys that arrested Jesus becomes a believer and hangs out with the church folks and tells stories and whatever. But anyway, Peter jumps up and he strikes. Now, um, the helmets, if you've ever seen like a Roman soldier's helmet or like a very thin metal kind of helmet from back in the day, you got to, 
none of those helmets went over your ears. They all kind of had this little slot that sort of went around your ears. Now, if you think about it, Peter, what does he do for a living? Fisherman. Do you think he's a very good swordsman? Do you think he's ever swung a sword in his life? No. So, if we think that that's probably true, right, what's more likely that Peter is a sharpshooter who, with expert precision, lopped off a guy's ear, or something else was going on? Nobody tries to cut off an ear. What do you do? Peter swings his sword, hits the guy in the side of the head with the helmet, shaves his ear off as it goes down, because he was trying to what? He was trying to lop this guy's dome off, right? Peter is not messing around. Now, do you remember before, earlier in this night, Jesus goes, or Peter says, Lord, I'll die for you. He, he meant it. He wasn't playing around. This is, remember they only had two swords, right? So, I, you know the Russians back in World War II, this is what they used to do. This is horrible. They used to, they didn't have enough guns for everybody. So they would pair them up. Every team gets one gun. You stand in front and you charge the Germans. And when your guy gets shot, you pick up his gun and then you keep going. And anybody that turns around and runs back towards the Russians, we're going to shoot you. That was how the Russians did it. Not enough weapons. Something like that was going on with these disciples. I'm going to start swinging. When do you guys pick up my sword when they get me? That's what Peter is thinking here. Jesus is not having it. Calls him out. Guys, cut it out. It's kind of a tense moment, right? Guy's ears just got chopped off. <laughs> ears on the ground. Blood's flying everywhere. You can imagine the tension if you've ever been to, has anybody ever seen a crowd start to fight? I've been in these Dodger games, right? Where all of a sudden there's 15 or 20 guys. It's like a tense moment. And I've never seen somebody's ear get chopped off, right? Like this is some serious business. Jesus, who just knocked everybody over by saying I'm he, <laughs> cut it out. You know, like when a parent yells at everybody and all the kids, oh, and then what does Jesus do? He heals the guy who's arresting him. This shows us the heart of Jesus. Now, as much as I want to talk about the heart of Jesus, we'll get to some of that in a minute. The curious part of me is very curious about this verse. How, maybe Malchus is in heaven and I'll get to see his ear, but how did he heal him? Did he walk up and touch his ear and then just like <laughs> he had no ear but it healed? Or did Jesus go, okay, did anybody see where it went? And then walk over, oh, I got it, oh, and then slap it back on this guy's face. And he's like, whoa, stereo, I can hear again. This has nothing to do with the sermon or the Bible. I'm just massively curious how this went down. And I can't wait to be dead so I can find out. All right, verse 54 then, the story continues. Then they seized him and led him away, bringing him to the high priest's house. Peter was following at a distance. So they took Jesus, who just... Oh, wait, did it not go? Yeah. Oh, there we go. They seized him, and there we go. Yeah. Um, they take him to the high priest's house. Now, the hard part here is there's actually two high priests, and we don't know exactly what was going on. So there was a guy, his name was Annas. He was the, the high priest that most Jewish people considered to be the high priest, but he wasn't allowed to be the high priest because the Romans hated his guts. So the Romans took his son-in-law and made him the high priest. That's a guy named Caiaphas. Um, Caiaphas, it's actually kind of cool. There's... Um, these things called, I think they're called ossuaries. So basically, the way you would bury somebody back in the day, and we'll get to this with the resurrection stuff, you would take them, and you'd have these tombs. If you were rich, this is how you buried them. You had a tomb. You would put the body kind of in the middle of the tomb, and then on the wall, there were all these like holes with boxes in them. 
like, like shoe boxes, but they're a little bigger, you know. And what you would do is you would leave the body to sort of degrade until it was just bones. Then a couple years later, you would go in, you would scoop up all the bones, put them in this box that had all these details about the person. You'd close it up and put it in the wall. We actually have Caiaphas's bones. They found it a couple years ago. It says the high priest of whatever. So this guy from this story, they like found this guy's body and his grave and all this stuff. So we don't know, like um, they actually probably lived in the same house, these two guys, the father and the son-in-law. Um, so they take him to the high priest's house and Peter follows along. Now, Think about Peter's night so far. He's pretty, he's clueless about what's going on. He shows up to the dinner. Jesus is like, hey guys, let me wash your feet. And he goes, no way, man, not my feet. You know, and Jesus goes, well, if you don't let me wash your feet, I can't cleanse. And Jesus, oh, wash all of my body. And Jesus is like, calm down, man. We're just doing feet today. And so um, then he gets into the whole, you know, I'll die for you, Jesus. And Jesus is like, uh, well, no, you're actually going to deny me, but okay. Then he gets exhausted from sorrow and everything. He falls asleep. He wakes up. He comes to, starts lopping off people's ears. But then Jesus puts the guy's ear back on, or he heals it, however that went. Again, I'm massively curious. Jesus heals this guy's ear. I think in that moment, something inside of Peter broke. When Jesus put that guy's ear back on, everything about the way the world worked for Peter, changed. He had a, this is not the way the world works moment. George Clooney has a story. I never knew this. I saw him in an interview a while ago tell this story. Um, you guys know George Clooney, the actor? He's the guy that I always steal people's fries by saying, look, George Clooney, everybody always turns, and then I steal their fries while they're not looking. <laughs> anyway, George Clooney, he wanted to be a professional baseball player. I never knew that. He almost was, actually. And he had a tryout with the Cincinnati Reds. And he said, the way he tells the story, they were up there throwing fastballs and I was hitting them over the fence. And I got real cocky. And I thought, I'm going to be a professional. I'm going to play for the Reds next year. This is going to be awesome. And then they brought in some minor league player who wasn't even good enough to go to the pros. And he threw a curveball. And George Clooney hit the deck. If you've never sat in a curveball, I've done this. If you've never had a curveball, it looks like it's coming at your face. And then at the last second, it drops and hits the strike zone. And that's what happened. He jumped to the ground. The ball was a strike. You know, the pitch was a strike. And George, everybody's laughing at George Clooney, I think. I know because I was in baseball and I used to do that and they laughed at me. And he said from the time he turned over and started brushing himself off and standing up, his whole world had changed. I am never going to be a baseball player. Maybe I should try acting or something. <laughs> Right, he had that curveball. That one curveball was a life-changing moment. His whole life had led to baseball. I think the same thing with Peter. His whole life had led to the way he thought the kingdom was going to work, and then Jesus picked that ear off the floor and slapped it on Malchus's face, and everything inside of Peter broke. He was, and so they arrest Jesus. Everybody else runs away. Peter, though, he's Peter. He's kind of impulsive right? He doesn't always make the right decision. So what does he do? I'm going to follow Jesus and kind of see what happens. He still loves Jesus, right? This is his master. This is his best friend. This is his Lord. So he follows at a distance. Verse 55. So he's standing there at the high priest's house. When they kindled a fire in the middle of the courtyard and sat down together, Peter sat down among them. So remember now, this is the middle of the night. And uh, in a, it's probably getting pretty cold. So they start this fire, 
And I don't know if you've ever been like freezing, freezing cold. Um, but it makes you crazy if you're that cold. Right? Like one time I was in my motorcycle in the snow. And I was like, I got to get out of the snow. I have no clothes for this. And so what did I do? I rode my motorcycle in the snow to try to get out of the cold, right? You do stupid things when you're cold and when you're, you know. So this is what he does. He's like, I'm going to go stand by the fire, which was a stupid thing to do, I think. And then look what happens. Keep going. Uh, Verse 56. Then a servant girl seeing him uh, as he sat in the light. So he stands next to the fire, and now all of a sudden everybody can see his face. And looking closely at him, said, this man was also with him, but he denied it. Woman, I do not know, I do not know him. So this is a, a slave girl of the high priest. She works at the high priest's house. And uh, John tells us she was like the doorkeeper. That was her job. And seeing him, as he stands in the light, she goes, hey, aren't you with him? Weren't you with him? That's all she said. Right? I think we m- kind of blow this out of proportion. Here's something interesting. Think about it like this. When the mob arrested Jesus, the disciples scattered. What did the mob do? What did the crowd do? Did they run after and arrest all the disciples? No, they they don't care. They just let them go. It doesn't seem like the religious leaders cared about the disciples at all, right? Even after the death and resurrection, they only arrest the disciples because they keep doing what Jesus was doing, teaching in the temple when they're not really supposed to be, right? They don't super care about these guys. They care about the ringleader, And so like John, for instance, he stayed with Jesus all the way through the crucifixion. And everybody knew who he was, right? And nothing happened to him. He didn't get arrested. He stood at the foot of the cross. And so this slave girl asks Peter, you were with him. That's all she said. No charges. No, hey, look, that's one of them. Get him. Nothing like that. And what did Peter do? Woman? I don't know. Now, the the word woman in this language was not like a negative term, right? Like if I... I go and I order at a restaurant, and the waitress says, what would you like? And I say, woman, bring me a sandwich. I'm going to get in a lot of trouble. That's, that's a very derogatory term in our culture. In this culture, it's more like the word ma'am. Ma'am, I don't know him. That's what Jesus says. So Peter's afraid, but again, why? Nobody's after him, really. This is all in his head. Because I think what's happening here is... Peter's life is falling apart, and he's in one of those sort of foggy, hazy moments where you're just not thinking clearly, right? We've all had these times. His entire worldview has just changed, and his mind is this jumble of confusion, and he's panicking. They've arrested his Lord. He doesn't know what's going on. Verse 58 happens again a little later. Someone else saw him and said, you are one of them. But Peter said, man, I'm not. Same exact thing, except this time it's a guy. The word is masculine in Greek. So this time a guy comes up to him. Hey, you're one of them. No, I'm, dude, I told you I'm not. And it happens the third time. After an interval of about an hour. So here's the thing. Peter has had an hour to sit there and think about how he's just denied knowing who Jesus is twice and being one of his disciples. He's had an hour. Another insisted, saying, certainly this man was with him, for he too is a Galilean. But Peter said, man, I do not know what you're talking about. And immediately while he was speaking, the rooster crowed. So the Galileans... When they spoke, apparently, I don't know, my Aramaic is rusty. Uh, But when Galileans spoke, that was like the Mississippi of their country, right? Even though it was in the north, this was like the deep south version, you know? Or like, um, what's that show where they kill the uh, alligators? You know, they hunt the alligators, and I can't understand half of what those guys are talking about. 
Yeah, like Louisiana. Like when you hear somebody with that dialect, you're like, oh, you're from the deep, deep south, right? Somebody hears Peter talk and go, oh, he's a Galilean, right? And then Peter loses it in Matthew. It says, he began to invoke a curse on himself and to swear, I do not know this man. He's really, like he's not just, oh, I don't know. I mean, I swear to, you know, my children's graves and all this stuff, you son of a, I don't know this guy. Like Peter is getting really worked up. And as soon as he says it, I don't know this guy, rooster crows. By the way, roosters are terrible. You ever heard a rooster actually crow? Roosters are the worst. Like, oh, I'm going to wake up in the morning and just start screaming? Seriously, guy? Like, that's a terrible animal. So anyway, the rooster crows because it's getting close to morning. And look what happens. And the Lord turned and looked at Peter. And Peter remembered the saying of the Lord, how he had said to him, before the rooster crows, you will deny me three times. He went out and he wept bitterly. Now, we have no idea what's the layout and the situation here. Wherever Jesus was at this moment, whether they were just walking him past Peter or whether Peter was actually in the room, like off to the side they were doing the trial kind of thing that we're going to read about next week, we don't know. But somehow, right when Peter denies Jesus, the rooster crows and Jesus turns and he looks at Peter. You know that kind of, I don't know if you've ever done something like this where you just got busted and somebody looked right in your face and you knew. Here's a good example. You ever lied to somebody about to be polite? Oh, sorry, I can't go to that thing with you because I have this other thing. And then they show up at something that you lied about and you're like, oh, I'm so busted. Imagine that feeling times a billion. That's what Peter's experiencing now. And then the fog in his mind clears. And he remembers what Jesus said. Before the rooster crows, three times, you know, before it crows, you will deny three times that you even know who I am, that you're one of my disciples. And it absolutely ruins Peter. He's already an emotional mess. He's already like, his whole worldview has fallen apart. He runs away. We aren't sure where he went. Maybe he went and found the other disciples. Maybe not. But whatever happened to him, this was a massive moment in his life story. Right? He's denied the Lord three times. And then he locked eyes with Jesus. He failed his master. Now, what I want to do next is pivot. So we've read two of the stories so far. We've read Judas, what he did. And we've read Peter. But the... Um, <laughs> the the betrayal and the denial, that's only half the story. Both of these stories have endings, right? So let's read the endings. Um, yeah, uh, this is from, wait, oh yeah, this is right. It's, sorry, something's weird in my notes here. Um, from Matthew, this is the end for Judas. Then when Judas, his betrayer, saw that Jesus was condemned, he changed his mind. He brought back the 30 pieces of silver to the chief priests and the elders, saying, I've sinned by betraying innocent blood. And they said, what is this to us? See to it yourselves. So Judas saw, it says, that Jesus was going to be condemned. I don't know what he was expecting. Right? We don't know a lot about why Judas did what he did. Maybe he had faith in the system. I don't know. Maybe he thought once Jesus gets an actual trial, people will see that he is who he says he is. I don't know. That's one option. Probably not. Maybe he was trying to force Jesus' hand. This is more likely. This is the Jesus who just said, I am, and knocked everybody over. He's not going to let himself get killed. So I'm going to put him in a corner, and Jesus is going to have to fight his way out. 
and then he'll inaugurate the kingdom. I don't know. There's a handful of reasons. Maybe it was just for the money. I mean, he was greedy. He was stealing the money. But at some point, he started to feel bad. doesn't look like he thought it all the way through. So he tried to take it back. Right? He acknowledged his sin, and he tries to give the money back. Um, and throwing the pieces of silver in, so, but they don't want the money. Like, I don't care about this. We already got our guy. Leave us alone. So he throws the money into the temple. He departed, and he went, and he hanged himself. So he tries to give the money back. He throws it back to them. And then he went outside the city, and he hung himself. Now, um, I want to read you this verse about Judas. This is Jesus talking in the book of John. While I was with them, I protected them, and I kept them safe. This is Jesus praying right before the, the arrest. I kept them safe by the name that you gave me. None has been lost except for the one doomed to destruction so that the scriptures would be fulfilled. This is Jesus talking about Judas. And um, in, the, in the, the ESV, which is the normal version we read, it gives us the literal. He's a son of destruction. This is the NIV. They sort of translate it a little more with the meaning, right? He's doomed to destruction. So Judas felt bad. He recognized his sin, but that wasn't really enough. And he died, and he faced the wrath of God for what he's done. That's what Jesus says. He faces destruction. Now, let's compare Judas's response to the betrayal to Peter's response to the denial. Now, on the first day of the week, right, so we're jumping. We're going to spoil it, right? Jesus raises from the dead, if you've not been here for Easter. On the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene came to the tomb early, while it was still dark, and saw that the stone had been taken away from the tomb. So she ran and went to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one whom Jesus loved, and said to them, they have taken the Lord out of the tomb. We do not know where they have laid him. So Peter went out with the other disciple. That's John. So this is Peter and John. And they were going towards the tomb. Both of them were running together. But the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. And, they, and stooping, looking in, they, he saw linen clothes lying there, but he did not go in. And Simon Peter came, following him, and went to the tomb. He saw the linen clothes lying there and the face cloth, which had been on Jesus' head not lying with the linen clothes, but folded up in a place by itself. Then the other disciple who reached the tomb first also went in, and he saw and believed. All right, so here's the story. The women go to the tomb first. The guys, they all sleep in. The women who were following Jesus um, got everything ready before, before Sabbath. They had to wait till Sunday morning. So they go, they find the tombs empty. They run back and they tell Peter. And what does Peter do? Yeah, he doesn't say, oh, I'm too ashamed to go see what happened to Jesus. I can't go near Jesus right now. I have to wait until the guilt wears off. No, what does he do? He runs. And then verse 8, uh, wait, was it verse 8? No, the other verse. The, the one that's like my favorite um, verse in the Bible. This brotherly rivalry. It's like John, who wrote this book, slips it in there. Where is it? Uh, verse 4. Wait, uh, yeah, both of them running together. The other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. That's the greatest verse in the Bible because the only reason to put that in there is because John was the youngest disciple probably and Peter was the oldest. And they had this real like brotherly relationship and John beat his older brother in a race and he put it in the Bible 
and I love it, and I'm here for all of it, right? I can't wait to get coffee with these two guys. Um, but they go, and they, now, of course, you guys know, they find eventually Jesus alive. And what happens a few days later, or a couple weeks later, is, let me find it, 21. So Peter runs to find out where's Jesus. They find him alive. He, he appears to them and all this stuff. And then um, verse, uh, in chapter 21, verse 15, so down a little bit. When they had finished breakfast, so now they're in Galilee, they're hanging out, eating fish for breakfast, which apparently was a thing. Uh, wait, do brunch people, do you eat fish at brunch? No. Does anybody eat fish for breakfast? Is that a thing? Oh, dude. Well, I have for lunch, though, but I ate a lot of lox and bagels in New York last week. It was pretty great. Uh, anyway, let's, let's actually get back to Bible stuff. Okay. So when they had finished breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? He said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, feed my lambs. He said to him a second time, Simon, do you love me? He said, yeah, you know I love you. He said to him, tend my sheep. He said to him a third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was grieved because he said to him a third time, do you love me? He said to him, Lord, you know that everything, you know that I love you. Jesus said to him, feed my sheep. Uh, oh, actually, we don't need to read that part. I lied. We'll just leave it here. This is Peter's restoration story. Three denials, three times, Peter said to somebody, I don't know this guy. I'm not one of his disciples. And then three times, Jesus commissions him to be the leader of the early church, right? To feed the sheep, be able to, lead, to feed the flock, right? Very intentional, what's going on here. Jesus is restoring Peter. I know you failed me, but the good news is, this is not about what you do, it's about what I do. So I'm, you're going to be the leader. Now, look at the two guys. We have Judas and we have Peter. These are two very different endings to the story. Judas, he goes and he hangs himself, takes his own life, feels bad about his sin, but what does he do about it? He kills himself. Peter, though, what does he do? He's restored. So what I want to do is I want to look at, to end here, last couple of minutes, is look at the difference between these two and this situation. Now, I was on, at my old church, before I was like the lead pastor preaching every week when I was like an assistant pastor, um, our church was bigger, so we had, we had like a preaching team. And the preaching team, what we did was every week we would get together and talk about the sermon that had just happened and then talk about ones that were coming up, kind of plan it out and that sort of stuff. And at one point we were doing, I think it was the book of Mark, and we were talking about Judas. And uh, there was a woman on the preaching team and uh, who decided to fight the entire preaching team about Judas. <laughs> and this is, she was absolutely adamant that... Um, Jesus, uh, Judas was saved because of this verse here, right? He felt bad and he threw the money back. And that's a sign of repentance, right? Well, let me say just a few things about Judas outside of just this reaction. The first thing is, every time you read, the Bible lists are, the order of lists are important, right? So if, if I'm telling somebody about my friends, Josue and Wendy, Nobody cares about that if I say Josue and Wendy or Wendy and Josue in our culture. It's not that important, right? In their culture, in this first century culture, it was massively important. Peter's name always comes first. Judas's name is always last in the list. That's an important, like, it tells us a lot about what these apostles who wrote these books thought about Judas. Also, every time pretty much he's described, 
before the betrayal. Oh, and then Judas, the guy who betrayed him, by the way, did blah, blah, blah. Always, they always bring it up. They never do that with Peter. Yeah. They never say about Peter, the one who would deny him. There isn't a single positive thing said about Judas in all of Scripture. We're told he was a thief. Jesus, we read that verse. It says he was headed for destruction. We have really nothing in Scripture that says he repented. Only that he didn't and that he felt bad and so he killed himself. But feeling bad and repenting of sin are not the same thing. There's a lot of people who do bad things in the world and they feel bad about them because they have a conscience and because God has built that into us. But that's not the same thing as repenting. Now, I'm going to read to you from uh, this Westminster Shorter Catechism. So you guys know we read the New City Catechism at our church. Um, What the New City Catechism is, the Westminster is what they use at First Presence. It's like the Presbyterian one. It's very long, very wordy. So what some guys did was they took a few of these older catechisms and they sort of morphed them together and made the New City one. So this is not our catechism, but a lot of it is helpful. This is what it says. Repentance unto life is a saving grace whereby a sinner, out of a true sense of his sin and apprehension of the mercy of God in Christ, does with grief and hatred of his sin turn to it unto God with full purpose and endeavor after new obedience. That's the important part. Did I make that bold there? No. But um, uh, turns to, turns, yeah, sorry, with grief and hatred of his sin, turns from it and to God. That's the key. Judas turned from his sin, but that's not repentance because repentance is not just turning away from your sin. It's turning away from your sin and then turning towards God. It's making the full turn. Judas, yeah, yeah, that's good, yeah. Judas turned from his sin, yeah, and towards the priest, towards himself. I'm going to fix this problem. I'm going to take my own life. This is the key. The key here is the idea of repentance, right? It's not just saying my sin is bad. It's saying my sin is bad and God is very good. There's a verse in Acts. There's a lot of these sermons in Acts. And one of those sermons says this, that they should repent and turn to God. So they, this is repentance. He says, right, repent and turn to God, performing deeds in keeping with repentance. So turn from your sin and towards God and then do stuff in keeping with repentance. Do things that everybody can see that shows repentance, right? Repentance is not something that just happens in the innermost parts of your heart, in the innermost parts of your soul. It's a change in your life that other people will notice. Um, there's a guy, uh, J.C. Ryle says, let us beware of repentance without evidence, right? Cheap repentance is just, yeah, I feel bad. I'm, I need my forgiveness and just I'm going to keep doing whatever I want. That's not real repentance, right? Repentance with evidence is what Peter did. How do we know, right? What did he do? He was distraught from his sin. As soon as he locks eyes with Jesus, he's devastated, runs away weeping, right? Not just crying, not just, uh, you know, the one tear that goes down your cheek kind of thing. I mean, he is weeping over his sin. And the next thing that happens, what does he do? We pick up the story with Peter. What's the next thing we see Peter do? He's running to Jesus. Not as fast as John, because guys named John are really fast, but he's running to Jesus. 
Now, the league of the ending here, right? Let's end this. The legalistic risk here with a sermon like this is it's, it's very easy to become legalistic about all of this kind of stuff. Here are the steps that you need to do so that God will accept you and love you. And if you don't do these steps, you can't be accepted. But that doesn't take into account the most important part of repentance, right? The most important attribute of repentance is it's not just something that you can suck it up and do. You don't have the willpower to repent. The sin in your life is very strong. It's stronger than you are. And this is not something that's possible on our own in our own power. So another guy, this guy A.W. Pink, he says, repentance is not at the beck and call of the creature. By the way, I always thought that was beck and call. And then I Googled it and it's, no, this is right. Anyway, repentance is not at the beck and call of the creature. It is a gift of God, right? The only way that we can become people of repentance like Peter is if God makes us new people. Because the kind of people we are, we're not capable of repenting. And so how does that happen though? in our lives, not through our works, not by trying harder, but through the work of Jesus on the cross. And so the key to living a deep, right, a real, a deep, like this life-changing repentance isn't to try harder, it's to look at Jesus. Look at the one who makes it possible. Look at the one who gives us the ability to repent. Charles Spurgeon said this, Right, we quote Charles Spurgeon constantly here. Repentance will not make you see Christ, but to see Christ will give you repentance. That's the whole point here. That's the difference between Peter and Judas. Peter genuinely loved Jesus. Jesus gave Peter this new heart. And so when it came down to it, Peter repented of his sin. He turned back to Jesus. He looked at Jesus So we're all going to be people who let the Lord down, like I said at the beginning. We're all going to fall short, we're going to fail, and we're going to sin. We're going to fall short, Romans says, fall short of the glory of God. But the more that you set up your life to look at the glory of God, to look at Jesus, the more that you will be a person of repentance. So how do we do that? Be a person of Scripture, be a person of prayer, like this just regular church stuff. Be a person of community and fellowship. And all of that will put Christ into your life so that when you fail, you don't have to show up and to pretend to be better than you are. You can show up and say, Jesus handled this for me already. And the more that I look at him, the more I want to repent of my sin. Amen? All right, let's pray. Anyone want to come lead us another song? Lord, we thank you that the way that our faith works is not, we have to try harder and do more and be better. We thank you that the way that our faith works is we're a, uh, you know, we're a bunch of turkeys who fall and fail and let you down constantly, but who are given the chance to repent because you have made us new. We're given the chance to repent because as we open up our, our scriptures, we can see your face. And so sanctify us, Lord. Make us more like you. Help us to live lives like Peter in the way that we come to you with our sin and our, and our brokenness. And we thank you that that sin was taken care of at the cross. So we stand now, we worship you, we praise you, we give you all the glory. Amen. All right, let's stand and sing.